Well, good evening, everyone, and it is a blessing to be here tonight. Let me go ahead and turn on my, my microphone here and make sure that I'm a official. And uh, there we go. And hopefully everybody can hear me. And tonight we're going to be talking about a divided house. We don't want to be a divided house. We want to make sure that we are a united house. But we have to be aware that there are forces out there that want to cause division. We have to be aware that there are going to be situations that will want us to divide. That we're living in a world that is constantly trying to divide us in different categories and different places. And the church is more than ever during this time going to be facing outside forces that will try to divide the church. Outside influences that will come in and try from society. And then also there's also the danger of division from within. Danger from within, that different ideas and different ideas have become competing that then become, in a way, distracting. And then, of course, in the end, cause us to not be in fellowship with one another. So tonight, as we begin to start our series, and tonight we're called United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And here we see Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 and 30. And to illustrate how division can come about, I thought one of the best ways we could illustrate this is with... Now there we go, here we go, we got Auburn on one side, we've got Alabama on the other side. Now I have to give you full disclosure, I lived in Michigan for a while, so we were Michigan-Ohio State, but I, didn't, I know the rivalry down here is very, very intense, to say the least. There's a reason why they call it the Iron Bowl. You know, that when you look at this game, this game is looked look forward to for an entire year. Players prepare all the time for this one game, this one moment on an afternoon or an evening on a November day. You can guarantee that Auburn and Alabama will be getting together to play. Now, we see that some people will be driving around the town and they have on there a house divided. You'll see that on front of their license plate and the front of their car. Well, you know, it's very interesting that when this game is played, the state of Alabama is divided. On that day, you got to be for one or the other. And it also trickles down where? Into the very communities and the very families that live and are so attached to this game. There was once a young lady, she grew up in a house where her mom was a very strong Alabama fan, and her dad was a strong Auburn fan. Now, she wrote a book that chronicled her growing up within this house, and she wrote a book entitled, When Mommy Loves Bama and Daddy Loves Auburn. And it chronicled her growing up in this house, and that they were both super fans, they both loved their teams, and... On the day that the game would be played, they would go over to their neighbor's house. They were Georgia Bulldog fans, and that was neutral territory over there. And they would bring them over there to watch the game. They, they didn't want their kids to see them reacting to the game. But it was so strange to the young girls because when they were growing up and they said, well, Daddy loves Auburn, Mama loves Alabama, from our perspective, we can't lose because the family's going to win no matter what, right? I mean, whoever wins the game... The family wins. And so what she wrote was chronicling about that and growing up. And what the family learned was that there were things that were more important than a football game. 
There are things in life that are more important than allegiance to a school. And that would be family. And that's allegiance to family and finding out that family is more important than anything else. And I think that speaks to us tonight that as a church family here at Great Oaks, nothing is more important than the body of Christ. Nothing is more important than the unity that we have with one another. That we don't allow division to come in and begin to separate things between us. Now Jesus dealt with a divided house in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12 we read in verses 25 through 30. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now when we look at this passage tonight, we see that the Pharisees are in opposition to Jesus. And they're in opposition to him, and they're accusing him of casting out demons in the name of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. But Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of their viewpoint because why would a house divide itself? Why would a house divide itself and stand against itself knowing that standing against itself, the only result would be failure and would be falling apart? Notice here at the end that Jesus talks about this and he says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? Have you ever thought about what it would mean to be against Jesus? Have you ever thought about what it means that when you are not promoting unity within the church, when you think that you know better or you're doing something else, it would be a very dangerous thing to be going against the teachings of the Bible and Jesus. That whoever does not gather with me scatters. And we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to allow wolves to come in to the fold and scatter the sheep. But you see, despite restoring sight to a blind man here, the Pharisees were still in opposition to Jesus. And we say, okay, well, why were they in opposition to Jesus? Because Jesus was teaching them the truth. He was teaching them the truth that would set them free. But you see, the Pharisees, they were so involved in loving to wear these great robes and these great cloaks and have the best seat at the table and the temple system that was in place that taxed people and funded all that they were doing. And Jesus was bringing about and teaching the people the truth, and they were afraid of losing what they had. You know, when I was in Iraq, the Syrian Orthodox priests were very similar to this. And what did they do? They loved their robes. They had a staff that they walked with, and they loved so much that power. They could walk around, and wherever they went, they were always treated with respect, and people got out of the way. And when the young young Iraqis would come and worship with us, on our base there, and they were learning the truth and not the the, the Catholic way, they weren't happy. Now, why do you think they weren't happy? They weren't happy because those children were learning the truth about the gospel and the truth of Jesus. You see, they don't want that to happen to their people. But you see, the Pharisees' hearts and their minds were far away from God. They were far away from Jesus, 
And they wanted to put their will first before that of God and of Christ. So we see here, what is the heart of division? What we see here, as Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks. Or in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, the good person of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Just think about that for a moment. The heart of division. What is it? It's what is coming out of us. Why don't you notice here in this passage where it says that a tree is known for its fruit. And think about that for a moment. What is the treasure of your heart this evening? What is the treasure of your heart? Is the treasure of your heart this evening to serve, to be there for one another, to love one another, to be there and carry each other's burdens? Or is your heart somewhere else? Is your heart somewhere where it's about me? It's about what I want to gain. And what is it that I want to do with my time? And not realizing that I'm living on God's time. And so it comes down to a very simple discussion tonight about division versus unity. The world versus Jesus. You see, when we think about this tonight, we see that Satan is the author of division. And Jesus is the author of unity. What is it that the devil wants to do? He wants to get in and he wants to divide us. And how does he want to do that? He wants to do that by simply taking a small matter and making it much larger than it really is. He wants to come in and create division in families. He wants to get husbands and wives arguing with each other and getting them to be against one another and then failing to come to church. What else does he want to do? He wants to stir up dissension within the church itself. He is the author of division. But Jesus is the author of unity. You see, brother, says one thing the devil knows is that divided we will fall. He wants to wreck churches, wreck marriages, wreck friendships, anything he can do to divide. And we see what's happening in our nation today, how we're being divided even today into groups. We're not finding the unity that we once had. Now, the root of this division simply comes down to it's a battle of wills. Do you want to have the Lord's will as the will for your life? Or do you feel that you know better and you want your will to be the greater than that of God's? And it's when we begin to supplant God's will with our will that we begin to create corruption and division. Now, tonight... We think about our state in America and what's going on, and what we have is what's going on is what's called the assault on the truth. Let me ask you tonight, what is the truth? What will be the standard for truth? What will be the standard that we will measure our morals by? Because we're living in a society today that we make up our own rules and we make up our own reality. We say that men can be women. But that's not true. That's not truth. And there's a war on truth and it's a war on values. And it comes down to us making a decision tonight. Will our values be based on the Bible? Or will our values be based upon what we believe to be correct? Now one of the things that the devil likes to do is he likes to deceive. Have you ever thought about this for a moment? The best lies have a grain of truth. 
Now, I'm going to give you a little test tonight. Now, I don't want anybody to be getting stressed out or anything. We're all going to pass the exam tonight. That's not going to be a problem. But I'm going to show you two images. And I'm going to show you this first image. And when you look at this first image, I want you to think about what is it that you saw first? Is there something else that you see? Just take a look at this and tell me what do you see? Just want to give you a minute there. Just, just take a look and see what, what, what do you see? Just take a moment. Now when we look at this picture tonight, what do we see? Some of us, when we looked up there, the first thing we immediately saw was a cat. Now I have a pet cat at home. I love my cat. And I, I have to be honest, when I looked up there, the first thing I saw was a cat. But then when you look a little bit closer, what do you see? You see, oh, wait a minute, there's a mouse. So you see in that picture there's a cat. And there's a mouse. But you see, what the devil wants to do is he wants to divide us, and he wants to tell you that when you look at that image, you can only see one or the other. You can't see both. And he wants to divide you into saying, I only see the cat, and I only see the mouse. And therefore, you never come together. You don't come together in unity, because what do you do? You always are only going to see what you want to see, seeing your side. See, that's one of the ways we get divided, that we see what we want to see in the image. Here comes our second image I want you to take a look at. What do you see there? Just take a moment to look. So when we look at that image, it's a very, you know, interesting image. But when we look, we see, we say, now wait a minute, I count one, two, three. No, there, there's three rods there, right? But then when I look at it, whoa, wait a minute, well, where is the third? Is the third rod really there? I mean, is the rod actually there? You see, what the devil wants to do is he wants to get you to believe in something that isn't really there. He wants you to get to believe in something that isn't really there and supplant that as the truth, and that therefore we would then begin to begin believing in the lie instead of the truth. And so what happens is, is that we begin to, again, put our will first. And what is that the devil will try to do to us Christians? He's going to try and twist the scriptures. He's going to try and twist the scriptures to get you to believe that they say something that they don't necessarily say. And then we start looking at the ways that the devil is trying to work his way into the church. What are the hot topic issues that we're dealing with in the church? Well, let's look at one. One of the top hot topic issues that we're dealing with in the church is, do we allow women to come into the pulpit and preach? Now, there'll be those who will grab a scripture here and there and talk about, well, this supports it. But then they'll read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where... The scriptures tell us that a woman is not to supplant a man's authority, but they'll come in there and they'll find all kinds of creative ways to twist the scriptures. Or what about another issue that faces us today, which is instrumental music, where they'll say, well, you know, this is supported by the Old Testament or it's supported by something else, and they'll go through. But when you go to Ephesians 5, verse 19, when you go to the original Greek and you go to the word salto, making music and melody in your heart, that word salto in the original Greek means music without 
Mechanical instrument accompaniment. But you see, the devil will get you, and then he'll get there, and he'll try to twist it, and he'll say, you know what? But I think it's all right. I think it's okay. But you know, when I was a young Christian, and I was going to Bible study, one of the things they told me that was very important that stuck with me all my time was this. Greg, it's not what you think, it's what the Bible says. It's not what I think, it's what the Bible says, so we don't allow ourselves to be twisted. So now we come to, and we ask ourselves tonight, we've talked about division, we've talked about deception, we've talked about all those things, so, so what are we going to do about all of this that's going on? I mean, there's got to be an antidote, there's got to be a way around this, there's got to be a way that we can come to unity. And yes, brothers and sisters, it is. It matters where we go to church. One of the things that we want to do is make sure that we're going to a scripturally teaching church. Are we not wonderfully blessed to be here tonight with wonderful elders, with Tim teaching and your deacons and all the ministry that you're doing? Promoting unity. Don't go to the church nearest to your house. Go to the one that's nearest to the Bible. Because when we do that, we are now engaging in Christian fellowship. And brothers and sisters, this is the antidote for the division. This is the antidote that goes against division and separation. It's Christian fellowship. It's when we love one another. It's when we care for one another. When we carry one another's burdens. And what we're going to do in just a few minutes, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, and we're going to see what Paul wrote about Christian fellowship and how important it is that we take those scriptures from Romans 12 and we apply them to our lives and we apply them to our time here with one another. But you know, when we think about fellowship and we think about togetherness, one of the things we have to remember is that any organization or any group or any nation must have a bond that holds it together. There must be some kind of bond that holds everyone together and keeps them as one. Now, when we think about the United States, what did we just celebrate? We had July 4th, right, yesterday. And we think about the United States, we've got the flag, we've got the Statue of Liberty, okay? We have a constitution, we have the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. We have the national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many comes one. But yet, in spite of all of those things, our nation is becoming more and more divided today. And why is that? Because we've walked away from our Christian heritage as a nation. We've forgotten who we are as a people and why we celebrate our freedom, which is given to us not by man, but by Christ. So what is the glue that holds us together? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bond that holds everything together. Jesus is the bond that holds us together in fellowship with one another. It's the bond that holds us together because we remember John chapter 14, verse 15, which says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. That means that I can love my brother and sister. That means I can care for my brother and sister. That means I can place my brother and sister before me because it's what Jesus wants. It's the command. It's the glue that's holding us together. And so we see here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, as Paul writes, And he is before all things, and in him things, all things hold together. Think about that for a moment. And in him all things hold together. 
Brothers and sisters, we are in a titanic struggle right now that is the world and the way that they see the world should run and what they define as coming together versus the church and the teachings of the Bible. And these things are going to collide in a colossal way. And brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about something for a moment? We should not be in fear. We should be in strength. We should be in fellowship with one another because God created us for this time. God created us for this time to be together, to be the light of the world, to go out and show what unity means, what love means, what compassion means. Because I want to show you tonight the struggle that we're up against. You see, the world is going to tell you that we need to have a brotherhood of man. We don't need any religion. We don't need any religious institutions, nothing like that. All we need is simply the brotherhood of man. And that is diametrically opposed to the Christian fellowship of the body of Christ. Well, let's take a look. In the brotherhood of man, love is conditional. Love is conditional. That means I will love you as long as you love me, but if we do anything wrong, we don't like each other, that's not going to happen. But in the body of Christ, love is unconditional. It's agape love. And then we come to the teachings. What are our values? In the brotherhood of man, it's secular humanism. We make up our own rules. In the Christian fellowship, it's the Bible. It's our standard for our faith. It's our values. In the brotherhood of man, they divide you into groups. They divide, they conquer to split you up. But what about the Christian fellowship? You're united in the body of Christ. And finally, where is the focus? If you notice in the focus in the world today, it's self-centered. It's all about you. It's all about what you want and what you think is right. But in the church here, with the fellowship with one another, it's outward focus, serving others, putting others' needs before yours. Brothers and sisters, Paul wrote about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I want you to think about this for a moment. If you ever wanted to find unity, if you ever wanted to find where people love one another, it's here in the church. It's here in the body of Christ. They were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. Take a moment to look around the room and look at your brothers and sisters. God loves diversity, doesn't he? I'm short, someone else is tall, one person is one ethnicity, one person is another, but you know what? We're all together in one fellowship, together with Jesus as the glue that bonds us together. And that is so strange to the world that they cannot understand. How can we be together, yet they are so divided? And so we come to Romans chapter 12, and now we put this into practice of how we should act to one another. I want you to notice here in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he's talking about genuine love. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Have you ever thought about what that word genuine means? Genuine, the real McCoy, not false. Now, Back in the 1800s, in the gold rush in California, they would go out there and they would try to make their fortune and they were all looking for gold, but there was only one problem. There was something out there called fool's gold. And fool's gold was what was called pyrite. And the difference between fool's gold 
and real gold is, is that when you found fool's gold, if you began to poke it with a metal rod or anything, it would begin to crumble and fall apart. But if you poked gold, gold would give a little bit, like soft lead. You see, brothers and sisters, if our love is not genuine, it's going to be like that pyrite. It's going to crumble and it's going to fall apart. But if our love is genuine, then it's going to be real. Genuine love means investing in someone else. Genuine love means actively listening and listening to what that person says. Genuine love means that you know your brothers and sisters and you're ready to help when necessary. In order to have genuine love, it must be a brotherhood that is rooted in Christ with opposition to evil. Let me say that again. In order to have brotherhood with one another, we must have it as Christ is our glue and it must be rooted in Christ with an opposition to evil. Brother and sisters, we cannot be friends with the world. We are not friends with the world. We are in opposition. And it means that this is the beginning of the first steps of creating an unbreakable bond with one another. Creating an unbreakable bond with one another that through the shared experiences that you have with one another and the things that you've done with one another and the hardships that you've endured with one another, you are developing a genuine love for one another. You are developing a genuine brotherhood. You know, they did a survey of war veterans. And when they did this survey of war veterans, they asked them, they said, what was it that motivated you in that war zone? What was it that motivated you that kept you going? What do you think their answer was? It was all about the men around them. It was all about the men around them being there for the men that were around them. That you know what? It didn't matter whether he was short, didn't matter whether he was tall, didn't matter what he looked like, because one thing I knew, he was going to be there for me and he wouldn't leave me behind. Do we have that kind of genuine love? Do we have that kind of genuine love in our churches? Do we have that genuine brotherhood? Or... Do we recognize that we are holy people? James reminds us in James chapter 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to be friends with the world. We don't want to let the world get into our church. We want to understand that we are holy, that we are separate, that when people look at you, there's something different about you. For Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Brothers and sisters of Christians, we are not like the world. We are different. I want to ask you a question tonight. I want you to think about this, and maybe you'll discuss it amongst yourselves or discuss it with your, with your spouse tonight. If someone was given 10 words to describe you tonight, if someone's given this, they, they had to use only 10 words to describe you, would Christian be one of those words? Do the people that you work with, your neighbors and everyone else, do they know that you follow Christ and you love Christ with all your heart? Because brothers and sisters, we don't want to go out into the world and act like the world and then come back here. No, 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 we are holy, we are separate, we are bound in brotherhood. But let's continue in Romans chapter 12. It's the bonds 
of brotherhood. Here Paul writes, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Once you notice what it says here, love one another with brotherly affection. Do you know what the difference is between friendship and brotherhood? See, friendship is conditional. And what friendship is, is that I will be your friend as long as you do what I like, and then we can maintain that friendship as long as we are doing the things that are mutually good for each other. But brotherhood is built on something much deeper. Brotherhood is an unbreakable bond. There's no division. It's forged through your common experiences that you've been through, that you've gone through, that have made you a stronger person. And it means that when you're going through your most difficult times, you're holding on fast to one another. It means that you would never leave behind or forsake that person. When I was in the army, we had a saying. It was called death before dishonor. I want to share with you this slide. And I want you to think about this for a moment. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Why don't you look at this picture for a moment. If you have a U.S. Army soldier, and he's in full battle regalia, part of his full battle regalia is going to be an interceptor body armor vest that's going to weigh 40 pounds. So if you have an individual that's 160 pounds, he just went up to 200. And you've got to ask yourself, can I pick that person up? Can I carry him? Because I don't want to leave him behind. I don't want to leave him behind to be hurt or to be captured. You see, you don't have the luxury of looking at that person saying, boy, that's just too big for me to carry. I can't do that. That's too overwhelming. No, that's your brother. That's your sister. That's you're going to carry that person out of danger. Brothers and sisters, when we are in our church here and we see people going through pain and we see people going through suffering and we see them going through very difficult times, we cannot look at them and say, Boy, that's just too big of a burden for me to carry. Now, I, 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 I got to stay away from that. I don't want to get involved in that. No. Because he ain't heavy. He's my brother. And that, brother and sister, is where the light of Christ shines when we're caring and loving for each other. And we think about that for a moment. And as we continue, what did Jesus tell us in the commandment here? In John 13. Now Jesus had just finished washing the feet of the disciples. And Jesus tells them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, and, that, and if you have love for one another. Think about this for a moment. If the world does not see you loving one another, if the world does not see you caring for one another, if the world sees the church divided and arguing with one another, then why in the world would they want to come and be part of the church? Because you're not offering anything that they don't already have in the outside world. But when we love one another, when we fulfill that command, that's when we shine the brightest. And when people look at us and they see and they say, there's something about you, there's something about this, I want to be here, I want to be here and feel that love. Now, what that love should naturally bring about is service. Are we ready to serve? 
Am I ready to put others' needs before my own? In Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful, do not be lazy. Be fervent, find that energy, find that fire, find that passion that you have for Christ. It means that we are to look for opportunities to serve our brothers and sisters and put them first and follow the example of Christ. I want to share with you a poem I came across about service. He's the wisest man in the church. There's nothing he can't do. If you turn down your ministry, he'll be there to do it for you. He's also a very faithful member and shows up right on time. If you don't honor your commitment, he'll cover you every time. He's obviously very wealthy. The plate's always passed his way. If you choose not to give a cent, he'll all the expenses pay. Who is he, you may ask? This one with such a claim? Thank God he's in every church. Somebody else is his name. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be a 20-80 church. We cannot be a church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. We are all called to serve. God has given each and every one of us skills, abilities, and gifts that we can use, and we use them for the glory of His nation and kingdom. We use them for the church, serving one another, loving one another. There is no lazy Christian. And what does that do? It produces service and humility. Have you ever thought about that? Not false humility, but true humility. The true humility of serving someone else. The true humility of understanding someone's in need and I need to go help. The true understanding that that widow that lives next door to you and the powers went out, that you're going over and you're checking on that individual and making sure that she's okay. You're making sure, does she have power? Does she have food? Does she have water? Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Think about that for a moment. Nothing from selfish conceit. That's the world speaking to you. Me first. Remember that cataclysmic battle that's coming together. That cataclysmic battle that the world says you're the most important. Your thoughts, you make your own reality. But Paul is telling you to stand that on its head. Humility. Put someone else ahead. Look after their interests. Put them first. So important. You ever thought about how wonderful it is when you go visit somebody in the hospital? One of the saddest things that happens in churches is when someone goes to the hospital and they get back home and they say, nobody came to visit me in the hospital. Nobody knew that I was in the hospital. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we're checking that prayer list. We need to make sure that we're checking and following up with people and making sure that they know that they're loved, that they're cared for, that we're building each other up, that we're building each other up and we're encouraging one another. Let me tell you about service on a personal level. In 2003 and 2004, my unit was called up from the Army Reserve and we went to Iraq. And during that time... My wife, Teresa, was left with three little children, seven, four, and two. Now, that's a handful of a lot of kids to handle by yourself and your husband's off in a war zone. Now, at the church that we were attending at the time, there were two categories of people. Two categories of people fell into this. 
There was one category of people that said, if you need anything, just give me a call. The other category of people were, hey, Teresa, let me take the kids this afternoon and you go out and get your hair done or you just take a nap, you do something. Let us take care of the kids for a while. Let me ask you a question. Which act of service showed that they cared and were investing in that person? You see, what do we learn tonight? We learn that we need to love in deed and truth. John reminds us of 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love is a verb. Put it in action and make sure that we are acting on our faith and encouraging one another and showing that love. But then we come to verse 12. In Romans 12, we see, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, this is a verse that I've memorized, that I repeat, and I pray, and I hold this verse close to me because this is the things that help us get through our most difficult times. Rejoice in hope. Let me ask you tonight, can you rejoice with others when they succeed? When someone else has got a great blessing in their life, can you rejoice with them? Or do you look at them over and say, oh, that should have been mine. I, I, I should have gotten that. I, I, that, that. That's not right. What about me? Or do we recognize that God is large enough to bless all of us and enjoy and rejoice with that person and rejoice with them in the blessing that they've given and share your hope with those who are in need, those who are going through difficult times, those that are battling cancer, those that are finding financial problems and family problems, that share your hope with them that you can rejoice. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient. Can we be patient? Not only on a personal level, but can we be patient with one another? Can we be patient with one another and know when someone's going through a difficult time to be able to understand that sometimes they might be a little unsettled? You know, when they were interviewing staff that would work at a cancer clinic, one of the interview techniques they used was they would intentionally try to get that individual upset and lose their temper. And the reason behind that, that they did that, was because many people coming in and receiving cancer treatments were going through very difficult times. Sometimes they were hard to deal with. Sometimes they said things that they may not have meant. But you had to maintain your patience and your cool and your calm and be able to understand what that person was going through. That's what we do here at the church. The church is the hospital for the spiritually sick bringing people in. Our brothers and sisters are going through difficult times and we're there with them, we're patiently with them, we're supporting them, we're loving them, and they know that every time they walk in the church building, they know they're loved and they will come here and they can receive the support and love that they need. And we also see there, constant in prayer. What is your prayer life like tonight? Did you know that when George Barna surveyed prayer life in America, he found that most Americans pray less than five minutes a day? What kind of relationship can we have with the Lord if we're only praying five minutes a day? Be constant in prayer. Take out that order of worship. Look at the list of the prayer requests and make sure that you pray over those names. When I ask the couples here tonight, do you pray together? Do you pray together? Do you make it a regular practice to pray together? 
Do you pray together as a family with your children? Do your children see you praying together? Are you promoting that unity within the family itself knowing that you are reliant upon God? For we see, brothers and sisters, we have the hope. There is one body and one spirit, just so you recall, to one hope that belongs to your call. And so what is Paul urging us to do tonight? Paul is urging us to walk with the Lord. I therefore, prison Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another's love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters, as we get ready to close in just a moment. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a way that when the Lord looks down at you, He looks down at you and says, that's my daughter, that's my son, I'm so proud of you, look what you're doing for the kingdom. And not only walk in that manner, but do it with humility. Be gentle, be patient. But notice here, maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Peace with one another. Not putting other things before you. And then finally, as we get ready to close tonight, we look at Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Brothers and sisters, continue to contribute to the Lord's work. Be a joyful giver. And then continue to show that hospitality. Extending that grace and that love to one another. Now, brothers and sisters, we've covered a lot tonight. We've talked about deception. We talked about the ways that the devil wants to twist our minds, get us to see something that isn't there, get us to twist the scriptures to, to believe something that is not there, that's not true. But then we talked about the antidote to that is Christian fellowship, the love for one another, the brotherhood that we have for one another, that when we walk in the building tonight, when we look to our left and we look to our right, we know that all of us are here together for one another, that we are united in the body of Christ. And that we are united with one another and we're not going to leave one another behind. We're going to love one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to be there for one another. Now tonight there may be someone here this evening that you know that you have allowed division to come into your heart. You know that you have not been living your life in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And you know that perhaps you've been sowing the seeds of division in your home or at your workplace, and you want to come down on the first note of that song, and you want to get your heart right with the Lord, you want to come down and pray with the elders and know that you can be restored and keep living your life for Christ. Or perhaps this evening you have not went down in the waters of baptism for remission of your sins, and you can come down, and you can come down with the elders, and you can be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you can come up out of that water on fire for the Lord, and know that you are now part of a forever brotherhood with brothers and sisters who will love you and care for you and be there for you in your most darkest times. Brothers and sisters, if there's any way that we can encourage you as a church, if there's any way we can love you and bless you, please come as we sing together. Prodigal come out. Though you've wandered so far from his presence, come today. 
Here is love.